This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. This is a UK Coaching Coach Developer podcast. Uh, My name is Tom Hartley and I am a Senior Coach Developer at UK Coaching. And I'm joined on the pod today with Simon Phelan. Uh, Simon, would you mind uh, just uh, introducing yourself for us? Uh, yeah, so uh, as I say, my name is Simon Phelan. Uh, I'm a university lecturer at uh, Oxford Brookes University where I uh, lead the sports coaching degree. I am a coach developer, a coach and a former athlete. Fantastic. Um, so on the podcast today, uh, what, what we're going to explore is just a, a bit around Simon's background and his journey into coach development. Um, talk a little around Simon's research and, and the applications of that into uh, a coach development perspective. Uh, some more practical support for coach developers and, and really kind of understanding a bit more about how, how Simon would uh, approach coach development. And then we'll finish off with some quickfire questions uh, just at the end of the pod uh, today. Um, so to kick us off, Simon, um, it'd be awesome to just hear a little bit about your your background and your your journey through being an athlete and, and almost how that led you into kind of coaching and coach development and, and teaching at a, at a later point. Yeah, so kind of, uh, I suppose a bit like lots of people in this in this space, whether it's as a coach, a coach developer, or kind of anybody in this in this kind of sports setting. I, I was an athlete myself, um, uh, and I was a fairly naive athlete because I, I decided when I was young that's all I was going to do, and, and the reality of that hit me when I got a bit older. Um, I was an athlete. I got injured, um, and I was at university really only to 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 do. My athletics. I was a, I was a high jumper. Um, every major decision I'd made up to that point was about jumping over a bar. Um, and then I got fairly significantly injured. And actually, someone sat me down and encouraged me. You know, whilst I was on a sports coaching degree, kind of by chance, uh, that I should probably start studying and probably start paying attention to kind of the the bigger picture of why I was at university. Um, and that really landed for me and kind of really hit home. Um, and kind of in the act of that, I suppose, you know revolution of my thinking I uh I started to look around and I was I was really lucky in the sense that I was at Bath University so I was surrounded by some really really high level coaches some of them were brilliant um, and I was surrounded by some really high level coaches that that weren't brilliant or, or for what I could see were great um and what was strange was actually that most of them had come through the same sort of formal education courses like they'd, they'd all done the badges they'd all ticked all the boxes they all kind of on paper were the same level of coach but they were actually very very different in terms of how they coached and, and what I considered to be good and, and bad coaching um, and at the same time as I say I was I was on a, a coach education degree I was starting to coach myself because it, logically being an athlete that that tends to happen you tend to feed into that kind of system um, and I realized that I was a badge holding coach, but actually I, I didn't really know how to coach, even though I was, you know, strangely on this HE degree and I had a coaching qualification and, and I had that stereotypical, I, I went down with a bag of balls and I rolled them out and 30 children took them and just went absolutely wild. And I, I quickly realized like I just didn't really, really know how to get hold of that situation. I didn't feel capable or able to coach at that moment. Um, so kind of because I was at university in that sense, I got led down the, the the kind of researchy academic rabbit hole of looking at you know people like Chris Cushion and John Lyle and Robin Jones and the notion that kind of coaches tend to suggest that they learn you know or their, their greatest acquisitions of knowledge and, and where they actually learn their trade what's in the trade is, is kind of the 
kind of discourse that seemed to be embedded throughout, you know, th those three authors kind of work. And, and that really hit home for me. Um, I think one of the terms someone uses is um, an informal apprenticeship. Um, and that coaches, the great coaches seem to have gone through this, this informal apprenticeship in the act of doing coaching and in doing so have kind of become great coaches. Um, so I got interested, I got excited in this kind of area of trying to make sense. Well, if coaches are learning in the act of coaching, if they're learning in the workplace, you know, the workplace that is their coaching context, the track, the gym, whatever, um, I ended up doing a PhD or wanted to do a PhD. And I started to kind of annoy my old coaches to, to find out what is it that makes a good apprenticeship then? If they have these kind of informal apprenticeships, what is it that makes it a good one? Because we have good coaches, we have bad coaches. You know, ultimately, the idea would be if we know people learn in this way, let's find out what makes for a good experience so we can turn the volume up on that and turn it down on the bad stuff. Um, so kind of from there, I've been looking at coach learning across lots of different domains in terms of research. I've been research assistant on various projects across multiple sports. I've done obviously my own PhD studies. Um, I've been a coach developer and I've done some work with, with UK coaching and um, and now as a, as a university lecturer, I kind of lead the, the sport coaching degree at Oxford Brooks. So that's kind of the journey that I've come on. And I suppose how my, my interest in making sense of how coaches actually learn and how we might support them has, has developed. Cool pathway. Cool. Re really interesting journey. Um, I'd be really interested. You, you said, you said earlier on about you, 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 you were noticing good coaches, bad coaches, um, in, in your view has since you started on, on your journey as a coach, and where you are now, has your view of what a good coach looks like and someone who's maybe, I'm not going to say bad, but a coach who's, who's aspiring to improve, what, what are the differences or what, what are the things which would almost help you make a decision on where they're at in their journey? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think actually my, I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, I think my, my understanding of what characterizes or what would characterize a good coach has definitely changed. Um, some of the people I thought were fantastic coaches, they, they were good coaches, but I realized they had one size that fits all and they perhaps do the same thing year on year. Um, and whilst that, that might work when you plow hundreds of athletes into that system, it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. So for me, kind of now it's, it's about the person who is, who is critical and reflexive and has a desire to coach the situation in front of them as opposed to find the athlete that just happens to work in their system. Because there's, there's lots of coaches out there where there's a pile of bodies at the back of individuals who perhaps didn't fit their, their system. Now, a good coach might actually be someone who goes, I'm not great for coaching you. Maybe you're better with someone else, but you don't always see that. That's interesting. The big, big thing we've, I guess, has been talked about a lot recently, especially at this period when nobody's out coaching, is, is almost that, that reflexive or reflective practice where people are looking at themselves and, and almost reviewing their strengths, what they could improve on. Um, I was going to ask this a bit later, but it feels like a great time to ask now. What, if you're working with coaches, um, or if you could give any advice to, to um, a coach who's out there thinking about becoming more reflective and really thinking about their own practice, how would you support another coach do that and, and help, help reflecting on what what all the goes key ingredients of what they do yeah i think that's good because lots of the time lots of time when we think about reflection um quite often what we're doing is or what we encourage people to do is just think um and just thinking alone doesn't kind of belie good or bad stuff it's just thinking like i can drive home from a coaching session and just think about the session and go oh well another another job well done but actually what we want to do is try and be critical of it and that doesn't mean just throw stones at it and say it was bad that means ask questions 
kind of the why questions. Why did this land? Why did it not land? Or why why am I only noticing certain things? You know, why is my intent in this session to do do X, Y, and Z? Um, and the problem with doing that is it it's it's quite vulnerable or it makes you quite vulnerable. And as a coach, you have to put yourself in that vulnerable position to, to be truly reflective or reflexive. And I don't think we always have the context in coaching to support people like that, whether they're professional, whether they're paid volunteer coaches. Coaching is like quite a political activity, you know, even from the highest level down to kind of the local local clubs, it is, can be quite political. So the first challenge, I think, is is creating that safe space where coaches can do that. Um, so as a coach developer, quite often it's it's me going, look, I'm, this isn't an audit. I, I'm not your line manager. I'm not here trying to trick you or to get rid of you. It's about making it a, a, a constructive experience. And the easiest way for me to demonstrate that is to be really critical and reflexive of my own practice and, and kind of almost kind of wear one on the chin in front of them and go, look, this is me doing it to myself. This is how I've done it. This is how I've been challenged. Um, you know, whether that's going into a context and going, do you know what? I don't know a huge amount about your sport and my concerns are this, this, and this, but actually I think I have value here and here. You know, that's being quite reflective and quite critical as opposed to going, you know, I'm not from football, but I, I'm pretty sure it's easy and I can make it up and, you know, all sports are the same. So I think it's kind of leading by example as a coach developer and, you know, the terrible term practice, what you preach really fits in that sense. Modeling behaviors that you want to see, you want to see with the coaches that you're working with. Yeah, definitely. And I think as a coach developer, it's not, you know, it can almost feel in some context like a hierarchy. And I think sometimes people talk about coach, coach developers as mentors. And I think in some respect they are, but sometimes the word mentor can almost feel hierarchical, like someone is better than someone else. And I think as a coach developer, for me at least, that's not the case. You're, you're, it's part of a relationship. It's, it's reciprocal. Like I learn a huge amount from, from coach developing and from working with the coaches. It's not just me going, I'm the expert. I bestow upon you this information or I'm granting you the opportunity to develop. It's very much a two-way street. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And I, in, in terms of your, your role around coach development, do you feel that when you're supporting people, are, are there any any times where you you have to you have to almost fit a different identity or borrow a behaviour that that helps get your message across? So almost that that removing the hierarchy um, is that always really helpful, or, or are there times where you need to have different levels of support to be able to help people move to the next point in their journey? Yeah, I think I think I, I kind of use this this idea that I've stolen from a, from a colleague of being a kind of a bit of a social chameleon. And as a coach developer, you need to be a bit of a social chameleon. Now, that doesn't mean go in and change who you are, perform a role, but it means being kind of sensitive to the context you're going into. So, um, for example, I've gone into football, and I'm so not football; it's frightening. Like I, I look like an athlete. I don't I don't dress the right way. I don't have the right haircut. Whatever. I don't look football, but I can play on the fact I don't look football. So I might use you know, depending on who's in the room, I might use the wrong term on purpose to get a joke, to start to create that relationship, to kind of to own that fact. Now, in some instances, that's that's what's appropriate. In others, it might not be. It might be, you know, it might be not walking in there and pretending, you know, being an academic and talking, you know, terrible academic language and distancing myself from them by going, look how smart I am by using this sort of language. You know, it, it's about being sensitive to the context you're in and and being aware of the fact that the way we behave, the way we talk, the way we act has has implications. Like even in settings where like I might be a known entity, 
you know, in, in athletics, I'm very much a high jumper and I walk like a high jumper and I dress like a high jumper, which sounds like a ridiculous thing, but it's true. You know, as a high jumper, I wore the small, tiny shorts and the kind of the big, tall, long, look at me socks. So when I speak to sprinters, they can, yeah, exactly. So when I speak to, to sprinters and sprint coaches, they know I'm not a sprinter. So that you're always having to kind of negotiate that, that, that balance. And I think owning that identity, it's like going into a context and saying, look, I'm not from this sport. However, I think my value is here, here, here. I think in doing that, you start to kind of bridge that gap. In your opinion, the advantages of potentially being a coach developer from a sport that isn't your own. Are you able to, to look at things in a different way um, to what maybe a coach from that sport w- would be able to do? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a really interesting question because it was a big fear of mine when I was kind of just doing academia and kind of there was a period of my life when I was looking to get out of academia and go strictly into kind of what we might call industry um my big fear was like I was so an athlete it was frightening like I coached athletics my friends were athletes you know I I studied athletics at university in respect of my my undergraduate dissertations and you know, I, I hadn't really moved too much outside of that sport. And I was fearful that, you know, I was maybe limited in that sense. Like I'd done some PhD data collection and I'd done some research assistant work in, across other sports at that point. But, you know, I was very much wearing the hat of, of knowing about individual sports, non, not team-based sports. Um, and the really big kind of valuable experience for me was realizing I could go in and ask stupid questions. <laughs> like I could ask, really not stupid questions, but the obvious questions, the things that, coaches in that context take for granted um you know whether that's behaviors practices athletes behaving a certain way doing certain sessions in a certain time of day or a certain area just asks ask the questions that make perhaps coaches go i don't know we just always we all always done that or actually my reason for doing it is this i haven't thought about that before i I get that completely and and completely uh appreciate the, the benefits of being someone who's almost a naive expert in that kind of environment. Did, did you find it hard or have you ever found it hard establishing create, uh, credibility in, in there where they're saying, well, hang on a minute, Simon's, Simon's not in football. How can Simon come in and support us if he doesn't know the game? So I think, yeah, establishing credibility is a really, a really interesting one. In, in some settings, you, you need to. Um, and in some settings, you don't because of the types of people you're working with. So, like, so football is a great example, right? I've had to get credibility by, by very much walking in and going, look, I'm an athlete. I, you know, I was really lucky. I was on funding as a, as a youngster. I was kicked off funding. I jumped this high. You know, I, I was lucky. I got to travel you know, around the world in small instances and compete internationally. So you, you sometimes have to wear that. Um, and I've had coaches tell me that doesn't matter to them. And I've had other coaches tell me later on, like, oh, I immediately thought this person's been coached. He's worked at that level. He can speak to what we're about to talk about. Um, so I think, again, you have to kind of know in what settings you need to, to sell yourself. If you walk into a room with some really high-profile high coaches, you know, the, the way you try and capture status is, is going to be really important. And don't get me wrong, you're going to do it wrong sometimes. Like I've definitely, you know, delivered conference presentations to, to a really mixed room. And I know that some of it's landed really well, but in other, you know, maybe some areas of that kind of the population watching that presentation, it, it didn't land because of, of perhaps the way I was selling myself or selling my research. Simon, I'd love to go back to something you mentioned at the start of the chat about 
um, learning in situ and and almost that that apprenticeship for coaches and, and learning in in the environment that they they're going to work. And you you kind of ask a question about what makes a good apprenticeship. Um, so from from your experience and your perspective, if if coaches are in an environment and they're learning on the job, if you like, and, and learning through experience, what what are the key ingredients that makes that really valuable for a coach? So I think the right sort of context um, in terms of a uh, kind of not to use the word safe, but a kind of a, a context that allows people to ask those critical questions um, uh, and one that allows coaches to put their hand up and go, oh, I got that wrong um, or I don't, I'm not quite sure how to tackle this problem. And I don't think we always do that. We tend to privilege those coaches who have all the answers or we encourage coaches to, not all coaches, but sometimes to, to wear the hat of I am the expert. Um, I know everything, and that's just not possible. You can't know everything because um, things move on. There's, you know, things are being invented and reinvented consistently all, all the time. So, part of it, I think, is is having that that kind of safe space <laughs> to do that. Um, is there anywhere in, in, in your time, something where you've seen a really good example of that? Um, yeah, I think um, I've been. I was really lucky. So one, one, one kind of large-scale project we did, I did a, we were doing a, an evaluation of a CPD sort of professional development program that was being delivered across this, this large national governing body. And we had all of these high-level coaches in the room and they'd been engaging in this process for, for eight months and it was kind of, an inf- it was kind of a formalised informal mentoring scheme, as kind of odd as that sounds. And, uh, and we were talking about the merits of it. We basically were trying to get some exit interviews on how they felt the program was, was going. Um, and towards the end of this kind of this, this roundtable sort of discussion, one of the coaches just, he put his hat down and went, can I, oh, but sorry, his hand on the table and said, can I, can I be honest? Can I just say, I, I don't think it's landed really well for me because I don't really know what we're trying to achieve. And I still don't really understand what mentoring is supposed to be. And for me, it was a really interesting moment because the minute he did that, lots of these other high profile coaches started to go, yeah, actually, uh, you know, my, I thought initially it was supposed to be this, this, and this, and that isn't necessarily how it landed, or that isn't necessarily what my experience was. So it only took one person to kind of show a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure for this kind of cascade of questions to start asking. Now, it wasn't everyone saying, oh, yeah, it's been rubbish, we don't get it, but it started a conversation around understanding what they were trying to do, whereas everyone else was, was kind of before that. Not pretending, but almost going, yeah, it's fine, I get it. Yeah, it's all fine, it's all okay, it's all working, it's all great. So it wasn't a very useful kind of process or experience for them up to that point until towards the end of the project where we then started to actually reconstruct what it was supposed to be. And for some of them, I think it then allowed them to kind of create value because they knew what the boundaries of the the support was supposed to be. It's easy to create that that kind of space where, where people feel like they can say that and not have that that fear of um what's the person leading this course going to think of me by asking this question yeah i think in that instance it it took a long time to get there like i I said it was kind of towards eight eight months and it took a long time to get there because they eventually started to realize that we were we were kind of independent kind of contractors we weren't part of that ngb and it wasn't an assessment it wasn't an evaluation they started to get to know us as people to some degree so um it became a safer space because they knew you know, we weren't then going to name them and go back to the line manager or, you know, the, the performance director wasn't in the room at that point. Um, so I think it, it does it does take time. And 
one of the things, one of the biggest challenges we have with sport is, uh, as I've said before, it's so political and it's so contested. I mean, ultimately, it's about winning. So someone has to lose, you know, and then we think about Olympic sports that have kind of a four-year quadrennial funding cycle where every four years there's a very real chance that a new performance director or a head coach comes in and with that might come new coaching appointments, might become redundancies, might come a reduction in funding. So uh, you were talking about like large-scale financial and political changes that can impact how people feel about each other. And we haven't even talked about them coaching yet. So there, there are always limitations to what's possible and, uh, in, in, in performance sport so that the challenges you have in trying to get coaches back from that ledge of what is quite a volatile context, or maybe not volatile, but quite a changing context, um, requires more work in some settings than it does others. We, we, we had one of our coach developer conversations uh, recently where we, we were looking at a paper written by uh, Anna Stodder and, and Chris Cushion around what works in, in coach learning. And, yeah. and the paper was written around a piece of research looking at uh, a group of coaches and what 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 new methods or what new approaches to coaching they adopted after being on a f- formal course and what yeah. they, they chose to reject and saying that it's a, coaches were the, the findings of this were saying that coaches are only adopting a small percentage, but, but things which, which correlate with their biography as coaches mm-hmm. um, and what they've been exposed to in the past as a coach developer and someone who might be, might be out there working with coaches who are not in a formal development setting, but, out in the field, trying stuff out. Are there any ways that you've, or any things that you've seen or done that that could be really useful for other coach developers to say, right, actually, if you're helping to nudge someone's behavior or or ask someone to try something new for the first time, um, is there there an approach that is effective to help people feel really comfortable at doing that? Because I, I guess, one of the big things we, we spoke about in the discussion around that paper was well, that the context of where they're working might be a big filter for them if they adopt a new way of coaching or not. And, and navigating that political environment can be a challenge sometimes for coaches. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that is a really good paper. Uh, and I really like, because I think Anna uses a phrase like coaches then go back to their own cultural context. That basically means they take all of the stuff they've they've heard and go back to their own space and then have to see if it fits. Like if that jigsaw then fits and, you know, into a different jigsaw and it doesn't always or after the fact they reconstruct perhaps what, what the meaning was and what it means in a different space um i think the job for us then as, as coach developers or as anybody who is a kind of a learning designer or a facilitator for, for coaching and coach education is to is to realize that everybody enters the room with baggage and i think coach development is a really classic example of um of an individual or of a group of individuals who are so heavily connected as kind of members of lots and lots and lots of different communities um and the result the result of that is they have baggage from all of these different communities that they bring with them into any new community that they go into and that shapes how they choose to engage with people it shapes the language they choose to use it shapes the way they dress the way they talk it shapes their expectations of what their role is you know if you're a coach developer who looks after the west of the country and someone else who's after the east of the country based on that fact alone the way they behave and the way they might understand the role in different settings is likely to change based on the interactions so again this makes it really hard because in any setting then we're we're trying to account for the individual coming in but beyond that every setting has its own history and its own almost unwritten rules of what is and can is happening can happen and, and cannot happen like i've had 
I've had coaches, you know, and performance directors say to me, that's a really interesting idea, but we don't do that here. We never have. It doesn't work. And, and so we haven't even tried it. We haven't even talked about whether we can do something. And it's already been poo-pooed because we don't do that here. The connotations of that are X, Y, and Z. So it's about trying to make sense of, I suppose, the different spaces that, come, that people come into. And I think one way that we can try and tackle this in a really, you know, because it's a big question and it sounds like, you go, oh, Simon, that's a really interesting idea, but how do I action that? I think coaches are quite in, clever and ingenious and no one wants to be a bad coach. I certainly haven't met anyone who wants to be a bad coach yet. Um, and people will create support networks and people will create spaces for them to learn and to talk to people and to try and challenge what they're doing. And whether it's their wife, their friends, other people, athletes, whether it's other coaches. And what we don't always do is, is make use of the existing support network coaches have. You know, we, we tend to bring, we might bring a coach into a new team or into a new setting and then kind of stick additional things onto them. Here's a mentor or here's someone to mentor. Um, here's a coaching network I want you to, to engage with rather than trying to kind of shore up and, and make sense of the networks that they already have. Which I think if you think about someone, if you employ someone because they're one of the best coaches in the world and they come with, you know, they have this network of individuals of support that they've used historically, then you bring them into a new context and you almost forego that. You don't support that network anymore. Then you haven't got the same coach you employed in the first instance. You've got someone else who perhaps doesn't have the support they, they might need. So for me as a coach developer, is trying to find, well, what, what, do, what access does, what does a coach currently have uh, and what does that look like? And, and can we make sense of the bits that are really useful and then shore them up and add additional stuff into them in terms of to make them more valuable, more, more efficient, rather than just going, I can give you lots of new stuff and kind of almost flood you with extra support. Network, do you, do you find, and I, I, I suppose this might be different for every coach that you can get in, into contact with, but are there any connections that coaches have that can be really useful? Um, something I've seen recently is coaches love to learn from each other. So actually watching each other practice and sharing ideas is a way that coaches love to informally pick up information. But are there any, any relationships that coaches have that could be more influential than others? So one thing I found that's because I tend to have operated mostly around kind of performance sport, um, there's always quite a lot of competition in certain settings. And unless you can find coaches from other na nations, you know, and even in that sense, it doesn't necessarily work. Getting past that competitive edge can, and that to a sharing context can be quite difficult. So what, what I've had success in in the past is by trying to link up with um, or get coaches to link up with and make sense of other people's coaching outside of their own sport. So they get to see it from a different way, whether they get, get a team sport coach to, to, to have a chat about coaching about a, with a coach who's an individual, who coaches an individual sport um, or beyond that. I, and I've only done this once or twice is um, only because my, uh, my, my brother and my dad work in, in finance, getting coaches to talk to people outside of their own context, outside of sport. And, and one realized that lots of the challenges are the same but perhaps some of the support mechanisms or perhaps some of the um, the ways of tackling certain problems are quite often the same. Because ultimately, all we're talking about are people working with people. Yes, it happens to be sport, and yes, it happens to be competitive, but the whole world is competitive. You know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about coaching someone or medicine or education. We're just talking about people dealing with people. So when you can when you can get coaches or support coaches in in kind of making sense of that, then it kind of breaks down the barriers of I can only learn or work with 
this type of person or this type of you know person in my own sport so i found success in, in that sense sometimes when, when you're having to get past the, the political aspect of it really interesting if you could see me now simon i'm kind of sat here nodding uh, as i think <laughs> <laughs> there's so much in that and and from a personal perspective i find it fascinating looking looking into almost shared worlds outside of sport where where there's lots of learning and lots of commonality with what we do as coaches but but we don't necessarily always think to look there um for example if you're wanting to think about how can you become more empathetic as a coach i think well maybe go and speak to a nurse who, mm, who does that definitely. on a day-to-day basis or, or if you want to think about differentiation maybe go and speak to some primary school teachers who have to deal with a class of 30 kids and and individualize learning for, for for all of them in the same space yeah exactly that in 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 terms of in terms of individualizing learning and that that's something i've heard a lot of recently and almost thinking about coaches coming on a training course and they they meet a certain criteria to get their level three or the level four in whatever sport it is um but actually they're they're only they're only learning to a point what the course is saying is important what isn't necessarily important to them as coaches in areas that they want to develop um would is there any ways as a developer that you you've gone about making sure that the learning experience for the coaches that you're working with is I guess it's almost keeping in line what's important for the organization or the sport that they're working in. Um, but what's of interest to that coach and what's going to help keep them really um, purposeful and, and continuing to want to develop. Yeah, I think, I think it comes down to kind of not a simple question really is what, why the why question, like ask them, why are they doing this? Like not just why they're coaching, but why are they, are they permitting themselves to engage in a coach development relationship, whether it's because they're being forced to, or whether it's because you as a coach developer want to work with them or, or because it just happens to work because you're at the same club or the same, the same, you know, community sport, whatever. Um, asking why. Uh, and sometimes you will get those, you know, I'm being made to. Um, and it's then trying to figure out, well, if you're being made to, we might as well try and make this useful. We, you know, and how can we make this useful for you? What, what would you like to get out of this relationship? And, and, consistently trying to renegotiate that um so i have had i've worked with uh judo coaches who who really really skeptical of coach development in the first place didn't 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 think it was a good idea particularly didn't think it was a good idea having someone from outside of of their own sport um and that that relationship developed to the point of where that person then wanted to become a coach developer because they got so much out of that kind of social relationship uh, and kind of that reciprocal learning that they kind of felt like actually my skill is in engaging in that and I think I can now help other people to engage with that so consistently trying to re to, to reevaluate the why I think allows it to be bespoke now sometimes you might have to have to do certain things in formal settings because it is part of a, a job role or a job description or um, you know a, you're contracted into it nationally you body to do it but I think you can always supplement that with what else can we get out of this? How can we make this important and relevant for you? What, what's, uh, without putting you on the spot too much, Simon, what, what's your why for you doing what you do? Um, <laughs> that, is, that's a, that is a great question and, and a little bit being put on the spot. Um, I suppose, <laughs> what's, what's, what's my why? I think my why is, is a desire to have impact, really. Um, a desire to, to have impact and, and create change. And, you know, I got asked a question by, 
by a really really high level academic a few, a few years ago that said why are you going into these places stealing all of this data and running off <laughs> like, why are you doing that um you know how are you how are you using it afterwards do you see the coaches again do you give back do you have impact and it made me question the why and yes my my desire was to was to create change because i get frustrated or i you know as lots of people do if you look at coaching research and you look at some of the stories and the narratives from the coaches on these courses and on in coach education, lots of the same stuff's been said for 20 years and we're still saying the same things. Like coaching's complex. Yes, it's still complex. It's still messy. Coaches still prefer learning in the act of doing. Um, they don't necessarily value huge amounts of formal coach education. Well, how can we, how can we still be saying that 20 years on? Um, so my desire is to, is to start to kind of challenge that and to change it. And I'm not the only one, and I'm not certainly the best at, at doing that. But I, I don't want to just hand a research report to someone and walk away and go, brilliant, I can put that on my CV. Uh, I want to see impact from that. I want to be the person helping to have impact on that, which I suppose is why I don't just do academia. It's why I don't just coach. It's why I, I also do coach development. You know, I do coach development in, in, in kind of professional settings, but I also do coach development in kind of, non-professional settings i coach develop coaches i used to be um, coached by because it interests me and because I, I kind of care and i like seeing them get better and i like being part of that question and answer process um, i was part of it as an athlete informally um which which kind of probably prepared me to be a coach developer in that sense really, really interesting to understand i think uh, as coaches perhaps um, and this relates to some of the work Simon Sinek I've seen do around kind of what is your why and, and people understanding yeah. what they do and maybe how they do it, but not necessarily that underpinning why. And if they've got a better feeling for that, then, then they'll be more impactful and more purposeful about the kind of work that they go and do. Um, and just, just a thought while I'm talking, has your why, have you felt it evolve or change over time? Is it different now to what it was when you started? I think evolves probably the right word. Um, you know, it's gone from a, a desire to have impact for a desire to help support consistent change. So we always hear the phrase, or we're hearing more and more of the phrase now um, that we need to change the culture. And, you know, for me, this is really powerful and important because my, my whole PhD research was around organizational culture uh, and how that shapes how people behave or choose to behave or, or relate to one another. Um, so we hear about, oh, we need, we need to change culture, but that's like a, an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, one, because it's a really difficult word to define, but two, you can't just change culture. It's, you know, by clicking your fingers, it's, it's long-term, ongoing, embedded. You know, think about going to a different country and the cultural shock or transition that you can experience in that sense. So culture is a long, slow process. You know, we behave certain ways because culture tells us to or enforces us, enforces us to or you know, encourages us to. But if we start behaving differently, we can reconstruct culture. And I think part of my why is to start to, or at least be part of that process in helping reconstruct the culture of coach education and of, of coaching in this country or in any country, really. Because, you know, I think coaches are really, really important individuals. If you read kind of sport policy, you know, the current sport policy, which is probably going to be updated at some point with this new government and current health agenda coaches are almost health practitioners because they're recognized now they're being recognized now as as key stakeholders in people's sporting experiences across all levels and i don't think we support coaches in a way that recognizes how important they are you know we have what did uk coaching say recently three million coaches in this country so that's a huge workforce um 
So I think supporting them in an appropriate way, if we recognize how important they are in terms of the health of this nation, how the activity of this nation, not even just from a performative side, then my why has kind of changed more in that respect. In, in, in 10 years time, in 2030, do, where, do you, where would you hope that we would be as a, as a nation, if you like, in terms of that development of coaching culture? What, what would you say is important for us to have got to in, in that, that time frame? Um, I think, I think, kind of recognizing the one, the fact that the term coach is being used perhaps a bit too freely everywhere, and we have life coaches, fitness coaches, SNC coaches, everything. Like so, in terms of making sense of what a coach actually is, um, recognizing that coaching is far more complex. Like one of my big learning moments was when when I realized that coaching was way more complex than the world had told me it was, <laughs> which is why I went out with a bag of balls, rolled them out, and went, "Oh no, I don't know what I'm doing." Um, so that was a really big moment for me, and I'd like to recognize that to be recognized more broadly, particularly when you know if someone says, "I want to be a coach when I grow up," you don't get the response. Okay, brilliant, but how are you going to make a living? Like that—that that needs to evolve and change, and that—that that probably is evolving and changing. Certainly from when when I was younger, when I was going to university. Um, one of the key things I hope we don't do, or we start to change in the next 20, 10, 30 years, whatever, is that coach education isn't predicated on coaching other coaches. Like so often when you're on a coach education course across multiple sports, not all sports, I agree, but in some settings, um, even if you're doing a level three or level four, you, you design a session or design a plan and then you practice on the people around you. That's not the right context. That's not the people you're going to be working with. That, that's not the messy situation of, of actually coaching. So I hope that coach education evolves to, to more accurately reflect um, the realities of coaching. It's not going to be easy. It's more time consuming. It probably is a longer process. It's probably a more expensive process. But I think it would be better in terms of preparing coaches for, for the actual realities of what coaching involves. And maybe then that, that transfer from what they take away from a training experience, a learning experience and apply yeah. it into their own context. Yeah, and I think people have gotten to this notion of saying that formal education is bad and informal is great. And that's, you know, that's, not, that's not necessarily right. I'm not saying we should get rid of formal education. I think it's great. You know, there are some really good, there's really good stuff being done out there and it is important. You need, you know, if you go to a new country, you need the phrasebook at the start of it to start making your way in that setting. But only having that phrase, but moving forward for the rest of your time in that country is not going to help. So we need to support what we do formally with, with kind of what we might think is the, the, the good stuff from the informal and the in-situ stuff. Um, Simon, I'd like, love to ask you some, some, just some really practical questions, just from your experience of being a coach developer and being out on the ground, helping, helping other coaches develop their craft. Um, so for all the coach developers who are listening to the call, are there any, is there any practical advice you might give people for when they come to support coaches? And, and, and in the essence that I'm turning up to training tonight, um, what does a, a, good, a good level of support look like to really help a coach um, on, on their journey? So uh, in terms of what the coach developer can be doing, yeah. um, I think a really, a really good way of, of trying to address that would be a bit like I said earlier, be one, that social chameleon. So not change who you are, but be sensitive to the place you're going into. Um, and two, one, manage your own network. So manage your own network as a coach developer because I think I did a piece I did a while ago um, that's still in the process of being written up. It talks about coach developers 
um, being one really, really connected, but also like quite isolated. Like they're some of the most connected people in the world, but massively isolated in the sense that they spend lots of time driving around, lots of time thinking about the other coaches, not necessarily thinking about themselves. And if we can create better networks of, of coach developers, then that coach developer doesn't ha- need to have all the answers. And I think by recognizing we don't have all the answers and we can draw on someone else, I can go, I don't know X, Y, and Z. I can pull Tom into this conversation to support that coach. It can make the, I suppose, sometimes the anxiety of going into that setting and going, I might not know this. I might not be able to solve this. I might not be able to answer this question. It makes it okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that that's a great point and, and completely resonate with me about being in that coach developer space but actually who do you talk to who's in a similar position to you who, who yeah, has that shared, shared experience and that shared learning um but the, the other question i really wanted to ask was with, with one of our earlier coach developer podcasts we, we richard cheatham shared through the process of observation if he was there supporting a coach how he might generate feedback or generate some conversation after the practice would take place so richard was talking about he would take rather than writing things down which he felt might might instill in the coach that if he's writing something it's it, it's a negative um he'd take a photo and then after the coaching session that would be a, a great talking point because it's it's live it's in the moment and and you can then bring in different people's accounts and versions of what was happening in that moment um from from your experience is, is there anything that you've used or done in the past that has been really impactful when you've when you've worked with coaches and tried to generate that conversation post-session yeah, a few times, actually. This is something that Andy Andy Bradshaw has really helped me with because it, it wasn't something I was necessarily used to. I, I kind of, when I first started doing coach development, I, I was a little bit anxious about capturing stuff um, because I'd only done it up to that point in terms of, like, for research, so doing interviews and making really detailed field notes, and that didn't necessarily, as you say, fit uh, into that scenario of going in with a pen and paper and kind of almost auditing the coach. It doesn't necessarily land really well. Um, and I tried videoing, and I've, I've done bits and pieces of taking photos and stuff, but one thing that really worked for me, and it probably speaks to kind of my background and, and my interest in kind of in words and language and discourse, was capturing some of the phrases that athletes chose to use and that the coach chose to use. And, and just writing them down kind of across the session. So maybe if at a particular moment, like the start of the session, athletes were using these sorts of words, these sorts of terminology, and the coach was using X, Y, and Z, and, and kind of throughout the session tracking that language and just using the, you know, either the change in language or the, or the lack of change in language as kind of a, a way to, to structure a conversation with that coach afterwards and, and then to unpick, well, why do you think the athlete was using these phrases? And they said this, what does that mean to you? What do you think it means to them? And again, it, you know, it, it, it can be really eye-opening because it can allow you to realize that language for that coach means something completely different than it might mean for the athlete or actually together in their relationship, it has different meaning. And that might be different across a whole team. Whereas me as a coach developer going in going, I think word X means X. It might not mean that at all to someone else. So that's been really useful for me. You've, you've, you've sparked a memory in, in my head about uh, an assessment or an observation that was, was done on me, if you like, towards the end of a qualification. And it was probably the only time I can really think of an observation where it's actually been um, significant in terms of learning rather than just telling me if I'm a good coach or a bad coach. And, and the person observing me asked, look, what, 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 do you want, what do you want me to look at today? And then at the end of the practice, didn't tell me all the things I'd done right or done wrong or or he just asked me questions and he gave me some evidence and he said, look, you've made um, 20 interactions or interventions in the last 15 minutes. 
um, half of those interactions were you were asking questions and you asked it to these people and then the other ones were some kind of discovery or a demonstration whatever it was why, why did you choose that and I felt personally that the process of him just giving me some information that I maybe wouldn't have noticed and then mm. just asked me some questions to challenge my decision-making process was so much more effective than saying, you've, you've ticked these five boxes, but I see, still need to three, see these three competencies in the next 20 minutes. Yeah, definitely. I think if we recognize that coaching is far more complex than being able to demonstrate A, B, and C, then we need a, an assessment method. Maybe not that term is perhaps the wrong term, but we need some sort of way of looking at coaching that recognizing it's bigger than A, B, and C. And I think helping coaches by providing them with more information and a different perspective because that's what we can do as coach developers we're not looking at it through the coaching coach's eyes we're not even looking at it through the, the assistant coach's eyes we're someone else we can stand in different positions we can afford to listen to athletes in a different way and to the coaches in a different way you know we almost sometimes act as that soundboard just bouncing back that information and then you know probing and prodding the coach to to explore it so thanks for your time today. We've got to, we're going to finish off with with some quick fire questions, if that's all right. So <laughs> yeah, um, I don't feel like you need to give a long answer at all. Um, really, just just kind of what, whatever you're, you're feeling straight away. So, um, what do you wish you'd known at the start of your coaching journey uh, that you know now that would would make a big difference? Um, probably to to network more. Um, and not in the kind of the terrible way of just getting my name out there and, and having lots of people remember me. Speak to people I don't agree with. And it's something I've kind of come across in the last few few months, really, that I, I don't always think that we as coaches, me included, um, surround ourselves with people that we don't agree with. We, we quite like to live in our own echo chambers, um, and that's logical. We tend to be friends with people who agree with us and who speak to our way of thinking. So I, I think I'd quite like to have... You know, and it would have been uncomfortable or difficult at times, but to speak to more people I don't agree with so that I can have more of a balanced understanding of why there are different approaches and why people believe different things. Um, looking back on your career so far, what would you say has been your most important accomplishment? Um, I, I think probably my, my PhD, which sounds a bit odd in this sense because it's, it's not necessarily applied, but the, the nature of my PhD was was I spent an entire year at a high performance center living and breathing coaching with these, with a particular group of coaches for four to five days a week for, for a year um, at a key point within an Olympic cycle and kind of getting out the, the end of that and writing up uh, uh, my doctoral thesis and then submitting this kind of executive summary to, to the performance director um, was one, a fantastic achievement, but like kind of a couple of years down the line, seeing some of the recommendations I made and some of the things I observed having changed over time or haven't been put into place was was quite a big thing and, and it's one of the reasons I kind of started to think oh maybe I can kind of do something in this space you know even if it's on a small scale nice nice um what advice would you give to anyone wanting to enter into the world of, of supporting other coaches um watch out for the rabbit holes <laughs> um her coach said to me the other day like never has she ever been encountered like been thrust into the world of academia and research so heavily as when she became a coach developer. Um, and I think it's really easy to, to, to dive down that research literature rabbit hole and forget about the people and talking to people. It's also really easy to dive into the just talking to people and the kind of the, the social aspect of practice as well. Um, and the final bit would be the well-being bit. Kind of I've already mentioned about coach developers, I believe being this kind of networked, isolated group of individuals. And 
you, you can almost, like the, the role of a coach developer is quite pastoral, I think, because you're not necessarily someone's line manager or kind of a formal hierarchical position above someone else. You can be a, a sounding board or kind of a, a receptacle for lots of the social pastoral aspects of it. So who do you then speak to and vent as a, as a coach developer? I think it's really important to support coach developers in terms of their well-being. Brilliant. Um, couple more questions. Uh, if you could gift a book to to anyone, it doesn't have to be coaching related. Um, but if you, if you could gift a book to everyone listening to the call, what what would it be and why? Uh, I think a book I read recently, um, and it's one of my favourite authors in the world, a guy called Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and he wrote a book last year, I think it was called Talking to Strangers, and I think it's really good for a couple of ways. One, because it talk, it is quite literally, as it says in the tin, talking to strangers is something that we do as as, as coaches and coach developers, but also just looking at the way he, as a, as a as a critical human being, looks at a problem, pulls together information and forms kind of a an informed argument. It was massively important for me in terms of how I look at the world and how I look at problems to, to form a balanced informed argument that isn't emotive and uh, kind of led by you know some of the some of the stuff we might see on, on social media at the moment i know it's useful for anyone it doesn't matter if they're coach developers or not yeah, brilliant yeah, love that i think again something outside potentially coaching that, that helps inform us in lots of different ways um la- last question simon um so imagine you've got your dream job okay w- w- whatever that might be and you could assemble your dream team um of, of maybe up to, to four or five people um now i'm not saying you have to name these people but um who or what kinds of people might you want in roles around you um to make sure your team is really effective um i think I, and again i can i can kind of speculate here because it's a this utopian ethereal <laughs> question but people who really kind of care um, which sounds a bit wishy-washy, but what I mean is people who are driven from a place of kind of almost childlike interest and sort of passion. You know, um, I, I kind of thought about this recently because um, a guy called, called Rusty, Russell Earnshaw, who, who's part of the founder of the Magic Academy, came and did a session for us at Brooks. And uh, Rusty is coached at the very top level and, and watching him work with some of our, you know, he delivered a session to our third year coaching students and having seen him coach at a very high level and then come and deliver a, you know, a session to us, but then get sidelined at little moments because he actually cared about the development of some of those students and not just in terms of their sport, like he cared about them as human beings and had conversations with them afterwards about, you know, this might help you move this way and, you know, outside of your degree doing this, this and this. And for me, that was really inspiring because he was someone who was a really, really critical, informed, passionate coach, but someone also was a really critical, informed, passionate human being. From knowing Rusty as well, I'd, I'd, I'd completely agree with you there on that yeah. point. Um, is there any other qualities of people coming into your team that you'd really look for, really value? Uh, people who don't agree with me, uh, definitely. I'm, I can sometimes be, I'm, I'm quite obsessive in like kind of a, I suppose a healthy way where I really like problem solving and I like, I like other people's problems and I can sometimes just dive into it, you know, and find myself, like at night, night look at something and find myself like 27 YouTube videos down into a, a subject I didn't necessarily know I was interested in. So having someone that can almost pull me back from the rabbit hole or, or question the why of what I'm doing would also be useful. Again, another way to move outside of my own echo chamber of thinking you're doing the right thing, you're asking the right questions. 
Simon, thank you so much for the last hour or however long it's been. We've been talking. Um, I found that really interesting, made copious notes and, and nodded and nodded away whilst you've been talking. Um, and I, I'm sure that everyone listening to the pod as well will, will feel the same and will have lots of takeaways from the call. Um, so a big thank you really for, for giving up your time and, and uh, for all your, uh, all your contribution today. No worries, it's been a pleasure. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.